Hello again and welcome back to the Australian Histories podcast. Today we're going to return to our look at the convict era, in particular the experiences of women convicts who passed through the Cascades female factory in Hobart, Tasmania. After serving their sentences, many became successful members of their communities and they are representative of the convict women who can be regarded as the literal mothers of the early Anglo-Australian society here. As always, there will be some accompanying materials and the reference list at the website at australianhistoriespodcast.com.au. As I mentioned in the previous episode, I have drawn heavily from several of the references listed in retelling some of the experiences, and I would recommend chasing up those titles yourself if you'd like more detail and further personal stories reconstructed from the documentation and from family history investigations. Last time, we briefly talked about the British transportation system, the setting up of a colony in Van Diemen's land, the early days of assigning and managing the women convicts in that new colony, and the facilities that were later needed to manage the increasing numbers of convicts then being sent. So let's continue where we left off last time, just as the new Cascades female factory opened in South Hobart. If you have not already listened to that previous episode, number 26, it may be useful for you to download that one and listen first to get an overview of the issues before returning to this one. Okay, so let's dive back into the arrangements for female convicts at the Cascades Female Factory. When the new facility opened in December 1828, around 100 women were marched out of Hobart Town to the Cascades House of Correction. Here, it was expected, the authorities could house those waiting short term for placements working in the community, and they could separately house and punish those who re-offended. The buildings had workshops to provide the hard labour component for those being punished, and to generate some income to cover the running costs. It would be highly regimented, and those deemed difficult would have to work their way to good behaviour, only then experiencing better conditions and opportunities. The location, being a good way from the main settlements in Hobart, was expected to ensure more secure isolation for the women, and less corrupt interaction with those outside. Quote, Farewell now to idleness and impudence, love-letter writing, throwing of packets, etc. over the wall, unquote. Though only time would tell if Cascades could provide an improved, secure and industrious environment. There were high hopes, though, amongst the planners, at least. The rules and regulations for the new House of Correction were issued, stipulating how the women were to be divided, housed, fed, clothed and treated and to specify what work they should undertake. Elizabeth Fry, an English Quaker, apparently known as the Angel of Prisons, had been lobbying hard for more humane treatment of convict women. A strong prison and social reformer, she promoted the idea of rehabilitation rather than simply harsh punishment, and sent many suggestions to the governors about the best approach. And they did follow her advice about segregating the worst behaved from the others to reduce opportunities for corruption, 
and increase the chance of reform, but in general, these female factories were to be places of repression rather than rehabilitation. Women were to be forced into the required acceptable behaviour by the rules and punishments applied. Lieutenant Governor Arthur stipulated that the new factory place the women into three separate classes and that, quote, on no account be suffered to communicate with each other, unquote. Class 1 would consist of those women recently arrived and deemed to be of good behaviour, as their conduct on the ship would be recorded, or those who moved up, having successfully seen out their probationary period in second class, again demonstrating good behaviour. These women were considered suitable to be sent on assignment for their terms when a place was found. In later years, though, the system changed from that immediate assignment by the authorities of Class 1 women. Instead, all women coming into the system had to serve a probationary good behaviour period to confirm if they were good or not before they would be released to find employment themselves in the open market. But for a good while, this assignment system discussed here continued. Class 2 was for those women who may have re-offended with only minor offences, and for those who displayed good behaviour for a time and had therefore moved up from crime class, showing themselves improved. Class 3, the crime class of women, were considered the worst. These women may have been sentenced for further or more serious crimes, or who were deemed unruly and difficult, incorrigible and rebellious. One would need to display much improved behaviour over time to move up out of crime class. Crime class might include the women who misbehaved while in the female factory or while out in the assignment system. And doesn't that term misbehaved raise your hackles, even now? They were often repeat offenders. The ones who rebelled the most within the system found themselves back here time and time again, undergoing some further harsh punishment if they failed to toe the line while in crime class. 21-year-old Sarah Mason arrived in August of 1851 after a string of theft charges and she seemed to struggle under the yoke of the penal system. Only six weeks after her arrival she began receiving punishment for refusing to work, being sent into solitary for 14 days. That's a very long stretch, so her resistance to the authorities there had begun early. Absconding from later assignment and further theft charges saw her back in Cascades doing hard labour. Even then, she continued to buck the system, racking up various additional punishments. In the single rooms that were at that time available, prisoners were, quote, strictly prohibited from holding any communication either by words or signs whilst in their apartment and at exercise. They are positively forbidden to sing, read aloud, or make any other noise in their apartment, unquote. Naturally, this wasn't going to work for Sarah, and she breached those regulations on many occasions. She was found with tobacco, and generally underwent further punishment for various, quote, improper and disorderly charges. <laughs> Though she was placed in service again in the future, she frequently absconded, getting sent back to Cascades, where one has to assume she must have thought it preferable to a placement. Sarah is recorded as refusing to get her hair cut as one punishment demanded, and this would have resulted in a difficult physical confrontation, one assumes. But again, the authorities, ever keen to get the girls out, 
and despite the string of bad behaviour charges, granted her a ticket of leave in September of 1856, and she was allowed to marry soon afterwards. Despite all the turbulence and rebellion of her first years in the colony, we must hope that her following years living free were more fulfilling, and hopefully even a somewhat happy time for Sarah. Living free, she might at least have enjoyed some control over her own life, as no further charges were listed against her. But it seems she may have died in Hobart in 1873, aged only 43. Each class was housed separately, and distinguished by their allocated clothing, the dormitory and housing facilities available to them, and by the work they were put to, with the crime class getting the hardest work. The good women in first class might work as hospital and nursery attendants, or as cooks or overseers while waiting for an external position. The second class women might sew clothes or mend linen. The third class the crime class would do the heavy and more unpleasant work, such as washing the laundry or picking, carding and spinning wool, which for a time was sent up to Maria Island Penal Settlement for weaving into cloth for the government supplies. Picking and carding refers to the process of pulling fleece fibres apart and shaking out any foreign matter, and further combing it through with a carding tool that might resemble spiky brushes before the clean and separated fibres might be spun. Of course, in the early days, there was not yet the volume of wool being produced in Van Diemen's Land, as there was in New South Wales, and actually Cascades relied more on their laundry service to bring in work. While processing laundry certainly was hard labour, they did not always have a steady flow of work, and for the authorities it was not as lucrative as required. The worst of the hard labour was probably picking apart rope for reuse, or the dreaded oakum for recycling. Oakum was used to cork up the gaps and waterproof the ship's hulls, and it was made of rope and horsehair fibres mixed with tar, so this was a particularly awful job which could wear the skin off their fingers. All the inmates worked long hours though, up to 12 hours a day in summer, though in winter the hours dropped to the daylight. And all inmates were expected to behave in a suitable way. And this idea of behaving is a tough one. What was acceptable behaviour in a working-class community may not have met with approval in the middle-class circles, so what may have been pretty ordinary, normal, rambunctious behaviour could have been judged as misbehaviour under the watchful eyes of the supervisors. The rules were very strict, like no talking or no singing. You might actually say pretty impossible to keep at all times, for the long periods these women were confined together. There were so many opportunities to be punished, with the regulations stipulating, quote, females guilty of disobedience of orders, neglect of work, profane, obscene or abusive language, insubordination or other turbulent or disorderly or disrespectful conduct shall be punished by the superintendent with close confinement in a dark or other cell, unquote. This confinement meant days and nights in a small, solitary stone cell, almost entirely dark, and one must imagine bitterly cold in the Tasmanian winter, with only bread and water rations. Other rules included that the women should be clean, quiet and submissive, and attend chapel twice a day for Bible reading and prayer. Smoking was not allowed, and they were not to have extra food, clothing, letters or other luxuries, except by the express permission from the superintendent. 
Hence, the media panic about some inmates getting contraband like tea, sugar and tobacco thrown over the walls. This contraband, of course, would give the receiver great standing amongst the inmates, who might then buy or barter for a share. But there were some minor potential opportunities too, with the regulations stipulating that women who desired to learn should have lessons in reading and writing. They were to have health checks, regular food, though the quantity and quality of that was often wanting in reality, new linen weekly, and government-supplied clothing. So those who may have been destitute in their previous life may have taken some comfort in these regular arrangements, and in the segregated company in the factory perhaps. Certainly those that have been preyed upon on assignment may have preferred doing hard labour here, at least maintaining some control over their own bodies. It was run initially by Ish and Anne Lovell, but Ish Lovell had to resign in 1831 after charges of mismanagement. <laughs> then the Reverend John and Mary Hutchinson took over, and they stayed on for 20 years despite an inspection the year after they took over showing the facility to be filthy and bug-ridden. Apparently, Lieutenant Governor Arthur himself was present for the inspection, and he was shocked by the conditions. He noted the worst was seen amongst the children, their bedding, quote, quite black with fleas, unquote. And though the Hutchinsons were directed to get the place in order, reports of inmates being sent to their placements in a squalid state continued. It seems they never did manage to get it into good shape, and in their defence they complained that the vermin came in on the dirty washing that was brought in for processing, so eradication was impossible. 1832 also saw Yard 2 built, designed to provide separate rooms rather than dormitories, but with around 290 women then incarcerated, it was still pretty crowded, and it only got worse. The single cells at least had some light, so the women might work while in there. And better laundry facilities were constructed, though again it was noted that there was still not enough linen coming in to keep the women consistently busy. Alice and Alexander, who wrote Tasmania's Convicts, How Felons Built a Free Society, that I mentioned in part one, has also edited a brilliant book called Repression, Reform and Resilience, A History of the Cascades Female Factory, and I have drawn heavily from both titles as they're focused on the Tasmanian and female convict experiences at the Cascades Female Factory in particular. I certainly highly recommend them to anyone interested in a deeper look at these topics. That book is full of snippets from the stories of many of the women who passed through the factory, some harrowing and some uplifting. Alexander, historian Lucy Frost, and a number of other authors also contributed to a collection called Pack of Thieves, 52 Factory Lives, which tells 52 stories reconstructed from the historical documentation available and some family history investigations. And Lucy Frost and a number of others also compiled a collection of convict stories in a book titled Convict Lives. The illustrations of individual stories included here are drawn from those works, and as always I'll put the publication details on the website. Repression, Reform and Resilience also records some internal census data of the inmate status in the Cascades factory for October of 1832. At the time of this single snapshot, there were 70 first-class women awaiting assignment, 52 in second class, 88 in crime class, 4 in solitary confinement, 21 who were nursing babies, 19 in the hospital, and 11 marked as 
old and infirm. There were 11 engaged as workers for the facility, and 11 marked as free women sentenced in the colony. They also recorded having a total of 92 infants at that time, and a number of other official staff putting the total housed in the two yards close to 400. So it must have been pretty awful, even with that new yard. It was apparently very difficult to maintain discipline under the crowded conditions too, and sometimes the difficulty escalated into riots. One in 1834 arose from complaints that they were not receiving their stipulated rations, and many of the women joined in to that protest. Several police had to be called in to quell the disturbance. A riot in 1839, again about poor food, saw the women smash the spinning wheels and arm themselves with the broken pieces. Again, the police had to be brought in, and the superintendent had to promise to improve the rations before the women would back down. The book also lists some typical offences which might send assigned women back to the factory for punishment. Examples recorded include making use of improper language to her mistress, improper conduct with her master's manservant, stealing a silver teaspoon from the house, and disobedience, neglect, insolence, and threatening to knock her master's brains out with a poker. <laughs> and then it's noted, but her master accepted her back after punishment. <laughs> One all too common reason that female convicts were sent back to the factories for further punishment after being assigned was pregnancy. Yes, that's right, women were punished by incarceration and after giving birth a further period of hard labour for becoming pregnant. It's interesting, one assumes these women did not get pregnant all by themselves, but I can't imagine their partners in crime would often be punished like this. And if you happen to be the mistress of an influential lieutenant, well, no problem at all. Nothing to see here. It's a pretty stark illustration of the class and gender double standards at work. In such a male-dominated environment, where the women were desired to help build families and transform the colony with their offspring, it is amazing to think that the authorities would punish these women. Okay, so they weren't married, and they've clearly transgressed the moralistic taboo on sexual activity. But what percentage of these pregnancies arose from completely, freely chosen and consensual relationships, I wonder? A convict woman placed on assignment in a household full of strangers with the power to send her back or complain about her behaviour could be in a pretty difficult position. The power imbalance is obvious, and you have to wonder, when you hear of the feisty women having a go at their masters, what may have brought on that response? What made that young woman, mentioned earlier, threaten her master with the poker? Women assigned to strangers in a strange land had very little personal agency. Even if the relationships were entirely welcomed by the women, my modern sensibility screams how unfair and cruel it is to punish her for the biological imperative. And then, of course, this punishment regime was extended to the poor child, who had no complicity or choice in the circumstances at all. A woman who became pregnant would be returned to the female factory to work there, confined, and to maintain good behaviour in place. Once the baby was born, they would have up to a year in the factory to nurse it, before being sent to crime class to be punished with hard labour for the crime of getting pregnant. Finally, they might move up again through the class system before heading back out on placement if their behaviour had been good enough. Either way, she was separated from her child, 
who would have been cared for by the attendant women in the nursery, before being removed to the orphanage in the following year or two. Oh, it just breaks my heart to think about that. But of course, this separation of children from mothers occurred when any convict was transported with her babies or children, too. If they were lucky, they may be reunited after her sentence was completed, but the system was pretty difficult to navigate, and there seemed lots of sad tales indicating many were never reunited. The Cascades female factory had a particularly bad infant mortality rate, too. While Hobart in general was a healthy environment, the concern of some that the Cascades site would be too damp and unhealthy seemed to play out. Though the crowding, poor food and perhaps less than careful attendance in the nursery would have had a major impact. Between 1830 and 1838, the mortality rate was 26%, though a heritage document records that it got as high as 40%. Though the visiting doctors reported the poor state of affairs, the authorities generally failed to take any meaningful action. In March of 1838, there was a rare inquest into one death, which brought the appalling situation to public notice. Unusually, a free settler woman was charged with theft and sentenced to six weeks in the facility. She was still breastfeeding her baby at the time, and so she brought him in too, being told by the authorities that she could keep him with her. But the factory staff forcibly separated them, despite the permissions granted by the superintendent of convicts, and the poor baby began deteriorating within days in the nursery. The woman finally got word to her husband to come and get him out, but whatever had made him ill had already taken hold, and although the authorities then let her out early to be with him, the little fella died. There was no definitive diagnosis of what may have killed him from the inquest, and everyone at the factory insisted he was given the utmost care. This highly unusual inquest only took place because the family were otherwise respectable free settlers, and the community was shocked. Clearly, it was a desperately unhealthy environment in that nursery, if not outright criminal, with a local publication describing the infant as, quote, the latest victim of the cruel treatment, unquote, given to poor innocent children. A 2007 heritage report on the site recorded the causes of death were mostly attributed to quote, dysentery, diarrhoea, enteritis, influenza, bronchitis and pneumonia. The nursery was moved away to other sites several times and returned with the advent of new facilities, but the high death rate continued. Unquote. In winter, the walls would be so damp as to be saturated, despite fireplaces built into the more recent incarnation of the nursery. A report of one doctor in 1854, checking on the infants, noted that their feet were always stone cold and the clothing frequently damp. Oh, it's just awful. Of the women that died in the facility, Alexander lists the following conditions as being common causes of death. Complications of childbirth, venereal disease, diarrhoea, fever, typhus, cholera, dysentery, and most of these strike me as synonymous with poor food, housing conditions and overcrowding, the kind of thing you could imagine could have been controlled in a well-run institution. Uh, cancer, tuberculosis and consumption. Another rare inquest that was held for an adult death had the jury touring the facility. At that time, they noted that the nursery was small, unventilated and overcrowded, housing 70 including children and some nursery staff in two small rooms. 
with an adjoining damp and dingy stone-flagged courtyard where no sun could reach. I know we have a different sensibility today, but even then they knew this was appalling, saying it was, quote, a total disregard of humanity, unquote. So that was an awful state of affairs, and such a shame, seeing as the place was almost purpose-built. These children were, after all, the future of the colony, and it would have been wise to encourage the healthiest environments for their upbringing if they did not want the situation in Britain of overwhelming crime and poverty to simply replicate here. Fortunately, the outcry did lead to them relocating the nursery to a healthier site back in Hobart for some time, but while other minor changes were made to the operations at Cascades, like decommissioning the stone cells, it continued to be a generally dirty and overcrowded place for the women and children living there. Returning to the convicts themselves, while some unfortunates ended up being transported for fairly minor property crime, there's no denying that there were some very hard women amongst the convicts too, and many rebellious, difficult and repeat offenders. One source suggests that the percentage of troublesome and repeat offenders may have been as high as 20%. But actually, given that smart-mouthing your boss on assignment, or singing, or calling out to someone in the yards might land you a few days in solitary, <laughs> that number might be surprisingly low, really. Equipped to administer further punishments for the repeat offender, Cascades initially had stone cells for solitary confinement in the cold and the dark. Here, the women would have only bread and water and be allowed out for only one hour exercise each day. For some of the more violent offenders, additional punishment may be added in the form of a heavy iron collar with long spikes projecting outwards. It sounds more like an instrument of torture, really. This was padlocked around the neck and would have made both movement and rest very painful. One poor woman became a regular wearer in her 23 stays in Cascades, and it was noted, quote, Even the spiked iron collar failed to tame this short, angry, unmanageable and drunk firebrand, unquote. And her story also records her sad end. She died drunk at the hands of her husband. So sadly, her release didn't appear to bring a success story. Mercifully, the use of the iron collar ceased a few years later. One seemingly incorrigible convict was Margaret Haynes. She seemed completely unable or uninterested in making the system work for her, and she spent a good part of her life in and out of institutions. Transported for seven years for theft, after a string of similar offences in England, she arrived in April 1850. At 47, her attitudes and patterns of behaviour may already have been set, and records of her conduct on board the transport ship was described as bad, though she was immediately assigned on arrival. Though she did appear to have steady spells, she served several periods of further punishment between two weeks and three months' hard labour for, quote, insolence, drunkenness, being out after hours, and disturbing the peace, unquote. While incarcerated, she was further charged with, quote, talking at muster, having items in her possession, and loud talking, unquote. So the institution and its regulations failed to suppress her feisty personality, and the love of drink, perhaps. Several times she was given 48 hours in the solitary cells, and even then they had trouble keeping her quiet, it appears. She was given a ticket of leave in June 1853, three years into her seven-year sentence, but soon after it was revoked, and she was returned to serve three months' hard labour for assault. Additional bread and water punishments were meted out during that spell for failing to perform the work allocated, 
and for having a dirty apartment. But in August 1854, she was again issued with a ticket of leave. Only months later, that was also revoked, when she was charged with, quote, having a man in her bedroom for improper purpose. <laughs> I mean, probably her biggest crime was just not thinking quickly enough. Why on earth did she not just say he was in there to kill a spider or something? <laughs> That's proper, surely. Anyway, I hope he was worth it. That was another nine months hard labour. There were more conditional pardons, and then more reoffending. But finally, in November of 1856, she was granted her Certificate of Freedom, just short of seven years after her arrival. They must have been so relieved to be shot of her, actually. It appears she married in the following year or two, and she came to the attention of the authorities again in March of 58 for breaking windows. And then in November she was sentenced to another two years hard labour for serious assault. A further few years later she was sentenced again for, quote, obtaining money by false pretenses, unquote, before she finally disappeared from the formal records. So probably not much chance of reform there, I think. And there were others, some spending an appalling 40 years or so in and out of the system. We should consider that, as in today's prison system, there was probably a good percentage of these women suffering from some degree of mental illness and untreated personality disorders, or alcoholism, or other trauma from some pretty sorry upbringings. And certainly, this primitive system was not set up to humanely manage those women. For some, such a regime would never be able to reform or help them. There would be those who could not cope with the conditions being placed on them, their responses simply drawing more and more harsh punishment. Anne Catchlove may have been a good prospect for rehabilitation given her background, but it seems the system simply aggravated her precarious mental state and it brought her regularly back to the female factory. Arriving in 1852 to serve 15 years for theft, Anne was 19 and illiterate, and she was recorded as a nursery maid and a needlewoman, living at home with her parents. Her story describes her as unsettled after arrival, and she absconded from her placement just a month later, which put her back into Cascades. Being put to work with her sewing skills there, she was soon afterwards given several months hard labour when some of the materials she was allocated went missing, and because of disrespectful conduct. While at the factory, her behaviour deteriorated further and she underwent several more punishments for disorderly conduct and singing and making noise in her cell. Early the following year, she was admitted to the Asylum for the Insane at New Norfolk, being recorded as, quote, subject to periodic attacks of insanity combined with hysteria, unquote. She was apparently noisy, abusive and violent during these times, her notes recording that, she always suffered from her head. I wonder if she might be diagnosed as schizophrenic these days. Her mother had been placed in an asylum in London, so there may have been some genetic history for her illness. Anne herself stated that, quote, she dare not drink, as a very little affects her head, unquote. But by December of 1853, she was again, quote, quiet, well-behaved and industrious, unquote. Being deemed recovered and free from headache, she was discharged. A month later, she applied and was allowed to marry a fellow convict, currently under conditional pardon. Anne herself was granted the same in 1856, and no further records about her are evident after that date. Hopefully, she suffered no further relapses. 
but either way, at least she was not sent back to Cascades. Another punishment, the one that the inmates feared the most, apparently, related to their hair. The women in crime class could have their hair cut off, and this was particularly shaming and was dreaded by almost all. One rather sympathetic observer recorded that the women considered it, quote, a barbarous punishment, a personal outrage and a degrading humiliation, unquote. And many either collapsed in distraught tears or fought ferociously to resist. What their short hair did too was mark them as separate to other women in the community should they later go on placement, displaying their status and shame to all. Amongst the histories supplied with the convict women's paperwork in coming to Australia, a good number were listed as prostitutes, Hunt suggesting about 20%. Apparently, prostitution was not in itself a transportable offence, but many of the working girls perhaps took the opportunity to relieve their clients of some item of property, which certainly was a transportable offence. Hunt further suggests that many convict women, who were in fact prostitutes, were recorded in their court paperwork, for discretion one assumes, as seamstresses. <laughs> and he notes that that euphemism would really have crapped off the genuine seamstresses, who could probably not find honest work without encountering the winking and knowing nods of everyone around them. <laughs> Historian David Hunt, in his brilliant read and reread hilarious book called Gert, The Unauthorised History of Australia, provides us with many wonderful insights to ponder. He tells us that of the 759 convicts in the First Fleet, quote, 28 had committed no crime other than handkerchief theft. Another 78 had stolen goods that included handkerchiefs, and a further 225 stole other cloth goods, and therefore handkerchief precursors. <laughs> Who would have guessed what an alluring and irresistible item the humble handkerchief was in its day? Imagine the delight these felons might experience, seeing that in our era they might easily steal a whole box of tissues through some self-checkout unit at their local supermarket. <laughs> in considering the good or bad behaviour of women convicts, Kay Daniels reminds us that the scrutiny of women's behaviour was different altogether. She suggests that women were, quote, portrayed as disobedient rather than rebellious, unquote. Indeed, their misbehaviour was scandalous. That's a term unlikely to be applied to the men. There was a story which told of a church service led by the Reverend Bedford and attended by the then governor's wife, Lady Jane Franklin, in 1833, where a group of women, 300 the story went, hoisted their skirts and mooned the powers that be, slapping their bare buttocks in a contemptuously indecent display. <laughs> All the more shocking for being performed by women. And yes, apparently the government clothing ration did not run to supplying them with underpants as we know them today, so I suppose this act would fall into the scandalous basket, as it might have if the men had done it too. But scandalous behaviour was much more outrageous to witness in women, and judged much more harshly. No, boys will be boys, get out, free, clause for the women. But just to clarify, historians have looked again more recently at that story, and it seems to be a bit of a beat-up. The original author recording that event seems to have massively exaggerated and embellished the story. And this version really caught the interest of the public only when it was published in 1958. 
Apparently there were no other reports at all of such an incident at the time, as one would expect with so many people involved. The Franklins would not have been present, and at worst it seems like just one woman may have mooned the minister around this time. It's more probable the writer's story grew from that incident. It's likely that the offending woman was Ellen Scott, who was reported to be part of the flash mob at the time, so quite game. She had a string of punishments for disobedience and insolence on her record, as she was indeed charged with, quote, indecent behaviour during the performance of divine service by the Reverend Bedford, unquote, in October 1833, and was severely punished for her lark. The bad behaviour that they found most challenging amongst the women, perhaps even more so than the violence, was that obscene behaviour. There were shocked reports from the Cascades female factory when the supervisor, investigating a noise in the dormitory, found several prisoners, quote, perfectly naked and making obscene attitudes towards each other, singing and shouting and making use of the most disgusting language. The disgusting attitudes towards each other were in imitation of men and women together, unquote. <laughs> and see, it's this take on a fun night out that precludes Hutchison from invitations to any modern hen's night. <laughs> no, joking, joking. I think the dormitories would have been pretty disgusting for many other reasons, though. So many women crowded into the room with no windows and very little ventilation, the fug in those rooms after a night locked in, not to mention the stench of the chamber pots, must have been appalling. It would have been punishment enough just to be in there. And yet, as illustrated to the extreme in the report mentioned a moment ago, some women did defy the poor conditions to make their own fun in there, when the authorities had virtually no control over them, a sort of breakout time all of their own after lock-up. Daniels wrote that other negative reports were, quote, full of scandalised references to foul language, drinking, smuggling, violence between prisoners, sexual relationships between women, and with men from outside, as well as dancing, singing obscene songs, and play-acting. All bore witness to the fact that reform was especially difficult for women because it related so closely to manners and demeanour, unquote. Good women must behave in a very narrow, demure, subservient and compliant way to be acceptable, it seems. Frivolity and a bit of raunchy banter is right out. Regarding the smuggling of contraband, it seemed it was still pretty easy for the determined to arrange for goods to be brought in and traded within the Cascades factory. It seems the Hutchinson's assistant, the Catos, might have been facilitating food and even liquor being brought in for the women for a cut. This contraband led to some women having great power and influence, the top dogs we might say today. Predictably, there would have been the expected cliques and gangs within the factory community. That's human nature. At Cascades, and indeed at other institutions as the troublesome were moved around, these women who showed little respect for the regulations and managed to work the system, or who used their power to intimidate others, were referred to as the flash mob. They seemed always to have money, even fashion jewellery and fancy hats to wear, and they had other luxury items like tobacco and sugar. Often the ringleaders of any disturbance, they held some authority over other inmates, but also commanded some loyalty too, it seems. And of course, 
As in any society, there were women in lesbian relationships. There were even some in the flash mob who preferred to dress more like men, one observer suggesting women were behaving as pseudo-males. And again, never mind the violence, this appears to be the most shocking of the revelations and reports for the authorities. Women's sexuality then was assumed only to exist in relation to men. And even then, women should always be virtuous and altogether chaste to be deemed good. One notorious member of the flash mob was Kath Owens. Aged 19 when sent to exile for receiving stolen goods, she was already considered a hardened criminal, well known for impudence, and this strong and defiant attitude saw her spend 10 years in and out of the factory. On at least one assignment, she insisted on telling her master the conditions under which she would work saying unless she was allowed to smoke, she would not work. This, of course, had her sent straight back to the factory, and it seems likely that this was her preferred way to serve her sentence. Though on occasions she was made to wear the iron collar and spend time on bread and water in the dark and solitary cells, still, for the most part, she was able to forge a life of sorts that suited her much better than being out with strangers. She and Ellen Scott the notorious church service bum-flasher mentioned a moment ago, were recorded in one report as being one of six lesbian couples amongst the flash mob. Kath was able to circumvent many of the regulations and recruit or intimidate overseers and fellow inmates so that she had some luxuries and influence as part of the flash mob. They altered and wore their uniforms, as a gang might, in their own stylish way, embroidered their caps, had silk scarves, and even wore earrings. This group sang and made up plays, complete with costumes, and chatted and socialised as they pleased in their yard. Though the authorities tried to break the group up, various members simply reformed into new incarnations across a number of the institutions during this period. Separating these women often risked major trouble, even riot, and the supervisors were generally fearful of having to do so. One saying, quote, If anything is wrong, it is dangerous to go amongst the large number in one room. If I need to take a prisoner out of the crime class, the others defy me, and I am obliged to carry pistols. I have had my shirt torn from my back. In almost every case I am obliged to use force to take a woman out, as they will seldom come out when called, but call to the others to their assistance, unquote. So they could be pretty threatening, and it seems at times the supervisors could not enforce the regulations in crime class without substantial reinforcement themselves. Catherine was considered a very bad character and was recorded as, quote, the leader on all occasions of misconduct, unquote. On one occasion when she'd been confined to the solitary cells for several days, a superintendent was set upon by 85 women in crime class, and they insisted that she should be released from serving any more time. Apparently that siege lasted all night, and the women fought like demons when 30 police were called in to restore order. The separate apartments built in Yard 2 would have been intended to reduce the bulk of prisoners sleeping in the dorms, and thus reduce the opportunity for this kind of group behaviour, as well as restrict the sexual contact that so horrified the authorities. But these rooms could never keep up with the population requiring accommodation. Eventually, though, the flesh mob dissipated and ceased to be, though Kath at least appears to have spent her full 14-year sentence largely incarcerated, despite so many others being able to massively shorten their sentences. 
Another inquiry in 1841 concluded that Cascades was not well run. There was no suggestion that the Hutchinsons themselves were corrupt, but that others in the institution were likely to be. It was noted that strict discipline was hard to obtain, given that they had too few free staff members. They had five free officers supervising 550 convicts at one time, and that the inmates assisting probably just left them all open to more corruption. Overcrowding and insufficient funds led to poor conditions inside, and therefore less than ideal outcomes for the women, and for the state, really. Despite those awful conditions, as mentioned before, some women could find ways to make their lives more interesting and comfortable, and even found some fun amongst the camaraderie, a secure place within the institution, a life. But even the toughest cookies eventually left the facility, some then disappearing from the records altogether, possibly falling into drunkenness and vagrancy, but others actually successfully forging a future on the outside, without any further interference from the state. And many of the Cascades convict women did settle, without too much more trouble, to live comfortably within their new communities, to marry and to have children. There were instances of these women being able to navigate opportunities that would not have been available to them and their children back in Britain, for example. So it's certainly not a miserable story overall for the times, though of course individual stories can still be harrowing. The Cascades and other convict women really were, to a large extent, the mothers of the nation. They contributed to the evolving Anglo-Australian society through their labour and through their vital role in childbearing and childrearing, as they moved out of the convict system into the free. Many managed to turn their attention to their families, farms and businesses, and to settle into steady domestic lives, their children growing to become prosperous, contributing and law-abiding members of the newly developed society in just one generation. 23-year-old Elizabeth Flanagan arrived in 1831 to serve a life sentence for housebreaking, and she did have several further punishments while at Cascades, in crime class, but in 1836 she married a fellow convict, and they had seven children in the colony. Elizabeth died aged 85, seeing her children and a vast number of grandchildren prosper and develop businesses, including the highly successful orchard industries in Tasmania. One grandchild went on to become Hobart's Lord Mayor in 1946, so it's not a bad trajectory from her shaky beginnings. Oh, does this lend itself to a all-politicians-are-crooks joke? <laughs> but jokes aside, I'm not sure that her offspring would have managed such a successful leap if she had served her time in a British prison. 50% of the early population in Van Diemen's Land were convicted felons on arrival, according to the 1847 census. A higher percentage amongst the women, actually. Alexander proposes that the majority must have navigated the tricky social structures to make a somewhat successful life as convicts and post-convicts. She says that while there was certainly a hush and a general quiet agreement never to mention their pasts, that most were far from being totally ostracised and alienated in a way that we might expect from the main society in the less rigid class structure of the new country. She notes that the system in general did not produce many quote, traumatised ex-prisoners unable to function in the wider society. If it had, Tasmania would not have been able to transform itself so quickly from a convict colony to an ordered, peaceful society, 
unquote. And that is indeed the experience across Australia. One's convict past was still something to ignore for some time. Many people can recall elderly grandparents, perhaps, shrinking from the idea that they may have come from the shamed convict stock. But present generations usually delight in the idea, so there's certainly been a complete reversal and rejection of any stigma remaining. Things were tough in that era in Britain. Most find the rather petty crimes their ancestors were convicted of amusing rather than shameful, and all water under the bridge after all this time. Van Diemen's Land became an independent colony from New South Wales in 1834. In 1840, New South Wales itself ceased receiving convicts from Britain, and this then meant greater numbers were sent to Van Diemen's Land, with 1842 reaching the peak in total transportation numbers at a massive 5,329 that year. 1847 saw the last of the New South Wales convict facilities closed and the remaining prisoners were sent south to institutions in Van Diemen's Land. With such vast numbers now arriving, pressure really increased. By 1851, the female factory had expanded to five yards, intended to hold 700 inmates. But at the time, the chronic overcrowding continued and numbers housed there actually reached 1,020 women and 176 infants. In these later years, the allocation system had dropped off in favour of all women being incarcerated and under instruction on probation until they were considered reformed, when they could then leave and find their own employment in the community. So the factory was functioning in a different way towards the end of the convict period. By 1856... British convict transportation to Van Diemen's Land ceased too, and as the numbers of women at Cascades reduced, even the female factory ceased operation, as it was. The British relinquished their interest in the property, passing responsibility on to the colonial governments, and afterwards the buildings were reused for numerous purposes over the next 50 years. Also that year, the colony changed its name to Tasmania, no doubt they were keen to shake off the taint of the convict area associated with Van Diemen's Land. These days, while it still invokes a feeling of a sometimes dark history, Tasmania is more well known now for its fresh, pure and varied gourmet foods and its spectacular and sometimes wild environments, a place of delightful R&R. The Cascades Female Factory had opened in 1828 with newly built structures in Yard 1, including three separate dormitories, a hospital, nursery, kitchen, rooms for the officials, and a small chapel. In 1832, Yard 2 was opened on the west side of Yard 1, which included a two-storey block of solitary cells that allowed light in, and a large new laundry washing shed. Twelve years later, in 1845, Yard 3 was opened, to the east of Yard 1, adding another 54 separate accommodation rooms. 1850 saw Yard 4 opened, further east of Yard 3, to accommodate another 88 women and 150 children. An improvement on the earlier developments, it contained its own cookhouse, laundry, privy and washroom, and had large windows and four fireplaces. Though sadly, these improvements did not halt the damp living conditions and the still very high mortality rate for the babies. The matron's cottage, which remains there presently, was built at that same time. Finally, 1853 saw Yard 5 open, at the western end of the complex. 
This yard was designed to house up to 112 women for shorter periods, just while they awaited employment. Once the Cascades Female Factory Institution for Transported Convicts closed in 1856, various yards were converted to operate in a number of different capacities for varying periods. Some facilities were immediately repurposed to operate as a jail under local Tasmanian governance, instead of the British Transportation Authorities. And though the buildings would barely have improved in amenity or damp proofing, various buildings were also used as a lunatic asylum, housing for invalids and paupers, and as a boys' reformatory later. Some facilities were also for a time used as a lying-in hospital for single mothers, a refuge for destitute women, and a contagious diseases hospital for prostitutes with venereal disease, the place continuing to house the powerless and destitute for many years. The Heritage Report noted that many of these requiring such care in these institutions were, quote, human legacies of the colonial convict system, unquote. Interestingly, they also remind us that the ex-convicts had their upkeep paid for by the imperial government, while the others were listed as colonial responsibilities. So there was at least some ongoing funding from the British government in recognition of their obligations for their citizens sent to the colonies. The Heritage Report also noted that the front of the chapel area in Yard 1 became the burial site for the notable Aboriginal woman Truganini in 1876, until her body was exhumed two years later. There is a sad and brutal story associated with Truganini, both in life and in death, and if you're unaware of who Truganini was, we will return to her story in a future episode. Around 1905, the sites making up the former female factory were subdivided and sold off, and many of the buildings were demolished over the years. With homes now built on part of the old site, the current Cascades Female Factory Historic Site, now World Heritage listed, covers three of the five main yards, Yard 1, 3 and 4. The Heritage document reminds us that, quote, the Cascades Female Factory Site is one of the few historic places in Tasmania where the story, from penal oppression to social control and philanthropy, can be so clearly traced, unquote. I'm grateful to all the enthusiastic groups in the 1970s who recognised what a valuable part of our history we had almost completely lost there, and who worked so hard to salvage and protect what was left and to lobby for better recognition and support of the female convict experiences too. I believe historian Kay Daniels, some of whose work I have used and quoted, led the campaign to save Cascades and to recognise its importance to our history, and many others were instrumental in creating the site there today. I really enjoyed visiting the Cascades Female Factory earlier this year. There's not a lot left physically, except those massive external walls that surround a couple of the yards, and the matron's building, but they have done some wonderful archaeological work there and created some excellent reconstructions which really give you a flavour of the place, and I found the two are very informative and moving. They've done a great job, and you should definitely put it on your visits list if you're in Hobart. I also took a wander through the female factory site at Ross, though it is much less formal in its presentation. I still loved it. I'll post a couple of my own pictures from those visits on the Australian Histories Podcast website too. Other great Tasmanian convict locations, such as Port Arthur, give brilliant insights into the male convict and secondary punishment systems too. 
as well as allowing reflections on the colony and the society at the time. They really are excellent sites. So I hope you've enjoyed that look at the female convict experience and the Cascades Female Factory. Again, I would recommend the books I mentioned, which I've placed on the top of the reference list at australianhistoriespodcast.com.au along with links, of course, to Cascade's own website, which has a wealth of information, including links to a resource centre that will be of particular interest to those tracing convict family histories, and details of the many other materials that I looked at too. Now next month, we're going to completely change focus. I'm hoping to look at stories related to our massive dingo fence, five and a half thousand kilometres long. That's nearly three and a half thousand miles for those still working in imperial measurement snaking through three states, almost sea to sea. I'm just starting on that research, so I'm excited to see what we can find out. Before I wrap up, I'd like to recommend another wonderful podcast that may be of interest. Some years back, the BBC hosted a podcast series created by the British Museum called A History of the World in 100 Objects. Exploring objects in the collection, the then-director Neil McGregor used collection items from two million years old through to the present day to explore and reflect on each item and its wider context in history. You might imagine that talking about an object that you cannot immediately see could be a little dry, but he does an excellent job of describing the item and, more importantly, the associated stories the object can tell and feed into. I loved it, devouring all 100 episodes some years back. It might be time for me to have a re-listen soon. That link is on the website also. Thanks for listening today. Remember that you can get in touch in a number of ways, including email, Twitter or Facebook, links all being available from the webpage at the AustralianHistoriesPodcast.com.au. I'll be back next month with a story about the fence, I hope. So have a wonderful few weeks, and I'll talk to you hopefully the last Friday of next month. Cheers. Cheers.